Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on December 24th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. This was my Christmas Eve morning sermon. I also preached one in the evening, but this is the sermon that I preached for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And I want to look today at three different responses to the newborn king. The response of King Herod, the response of the scribes and the chief priests, and the response of the Magi. And, you know, talk about how at different times in our lives we can respond to our King Jesus just the way each of these people did. And I want to challenge us to respond to our King like the Magi. How can we do that? That's what today's sermon is about. Our scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which I will read now. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Boy, that sounded better in my head before Matthew showed off by singing a cappella this morning. This is literally one of my favorite Christmas hymns, and obviously today's scripture um, is all about the subject of this hymn. This hymn has a beautiful melody. Uh, Unfortunately, it's wrong in nearly every detail. But I still love it. Well, first, let's talk about the Magi. They, they, they worked for a king. They were courtiers for a king. They were not themselves kings. See, they believed that the movement of the stars and planets foretold important events that were happening on Earth. 
Likewise, they believed when something really significant was happening on Earth, you could look in the heavens and you could see some corresponding astronomical event. So their job was to study the night sky, and they were experts at it. And they would discern uh, what was happening here on earth based on what they were seeing in the sky. And then they would in turn report what they found, report the news to the king that they worked for. Also, there probably were not three magi. The three comes from the fact that we're told that they gave Jesus three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But based on what I've read, it's likely that there was a larger entourage than just three. And they weren't from the Orient, (laughs) unlike what the song says. Most likely, they were from the Middle East. They were from Babylon. They were from the Persian Gulf region. So... There probably weren't three, they weren't kings, and they weren't from the Orient. But besides that, the song is great. <laughs> it does have a great melody. I do, I do love the song. Notice verse 2. These magi came to Jerusalem seeking the newborn king of the Jews because, they tell others, they saw his star rising. We don't know what this star was. It might have been a natural astronomical event or a miraculous event specially created by God to bring these individuals to Bethlehem, to Jesus. We don't need to get hung up on what the star was. It sounds to me, and I've read a little bit and heard a little bit about this, but it sounds to me like there was a, a, a perfectly natural and scientifically explainable um, uh, uh, astronomical event happening in the night sky that would have indicated to these magi that a royal birth in Israel had taken place. Highly unusual, but scientifically explainable. But then in verses 9 and 10, what Matthew describes there, where when the star actually leads them from Jerusalem, seven miles south to Bethlehem, that sounds more like a supernatural event. Does it matter? Not at all. If it was a natural event, which astronomers can study and explain scientifically, it was a natural event designed by God before the creation of the world to appear at this particular time and place in order to lead these wise men to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Just think. God is so powerful, so sovereign over his creation, so in control of this universe that he doesn't even need to work a miracle that defies the laws of physics in order to be active in our world. He can work through natural events. God is always working at every moment, in every event, and through every purpose, excuse me, every person to accomplish his purpose in the world. This is called the doctrine of God's providence, which means that we can know that everything that happens in the universe happens according to God's plan and purpose. By the logic of providence, then, God is constantly intervening in our world. So in a way, miracles 
If you think of a miracle as God intervening in our world in some way, miracles happen all the time, even when modern science can explain why something happens. A scientific explanation, you see, is merely the most superficial reason. There's always a deeper reason, and God is always behind it. So, for example, years ago, I, I was going through a difficult trial in my life, and I, I remarked to a friend of mine who happens to be Jewish, I said, why is this happening to me? And my friend, with great wisdom, said, no, Brent, don't ask, why is this happening? Instead, you need to ask, why is this happening to me now? By which he meant that that God is trying to teach me something, that God is trying to show me something, that God needs for me to learn something through this difficult trial. It's going to help me in some way. So my friend, who wasn't even a Christian, rightly understood the Bible better than I did at the time when it comes to the doctrine of God's providence. And he rightly understood that if, if something was happening at all, it was happening for a reason or reasons, maybe a million reasons, but they were known to God and God was in control. And of course, this astronomical event could have been a completely supernatural one. It could have been a complete miracle that defied the laws of physics, specially created by God on this occasion so that these magi could get from point A in Babylon to point B in Bethlehem. Now, I love speculating about the star of Bethlehem as much as the next guy. But let's not miss the point. Let's not miss the amazing thing that God is up to in today's scripture. That God so loved the world, including, including these superstitious, idolatrous, pagan, polytheistic unbelievers, that God loved them so much that he led them by his grace into a saving relationship with him through his son, Jesus. It's no exaggeration to say that God moved heaven and earth almost literally when you think about the movement of the planets and the stars. God moved heaven and earth to save these few people. Isn't that awesome? This is the message of Christmas. God loves us so much that he wants everyone in the world to be saved, to be rescued from their sins, to be rescued from Satan, to be rescued from death, to be rescued from God's judgment, to be rescued from hell. We deserve nothing but eternal separation from God because of our sins. But God himself intervened. By coming into the world to save us. That's the good news of Christmas. Now, I want us to look at three responses in today's scripture to this good news. First, the response of Herod. Herod is a bad guy. He is evil on a grand scale. I told the group uh, before the service in the Bible study that before Hitler, before about 1940 and Hitler became the epitome of evil, you know, when you're, you're trying to find the name of someone who just represents evil, before there was a Hitler at all, people would refer to King Herod 
in that way. I mean, this is a bad guy. We know this from, from secular history. He's a bad guy. But, I, but let's give him a little bit of credit, just a little bit, because at least King Herod understood exactly who Jesus was. He understood the threat that Jesus posed to him and his kingdom. Herod knew that if Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of the universe, the son of God, it meant that everything in Herod's life was going to have to change. Nothing could be the same if these magi were right and Jesus was this newborn king. Herod knew that There wasn't enough room on his throne for both him and Jesus. So naturally, Herod wanted Jesus dead. (laughs) In a new Advent devotional book, a pastor named Paul David Tripp puts his finger on, on Herod's ultimate problem, which happens to be our problem as well. You see, there's a little bit of King Herod living inside each one of us, I'm afraid. And King Herod wants all the glory for himself. You see, you and I, we have a glory problem. (laughs) Pastor Tripp writes, we have have preferred living for ourselves over living for something and someone bigger than ourselves. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our friendships, and in the church, we have made life all about us. We have tended to reduce the active field of our concern down to the tiny confines of our wants, our needs, our plans, our satisfaction and our happiness. It's not wrong to want some control or to be right or to to like beautiful possessions or to be surrounded by a community of love. But it's wrong and spiritually dangerous for those things to rule your heart. He goes on to say that sin makes each one of us a glory thief. We steal for ourselves the glory that rightly belongs to God alone. And even though this makes us miserable, we still still keep on craving this kind of glory. 25 years ago, my first job out of college was in sales with AT&T, and and I was working under a mentor, a very experienced, well-seasoned, and successful salesman named Alec. Alec told me on more than one occasion that he was not really motivated by money, of which he seemed to have plenty. No, what, what motivated him, he said, was recognition. I want recognition. Now, given my own modest commission checks back then, I I thought that was insane. (laughs) It's like, share share your paycheck with me then. (laughs) Now, however, I hate to say that I totally know what he meant, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, how desperately I crave recognition. God help me. There's this little bit of King Herod inside of me that wants all the glory. I am a glory thief. What about you? How, how, how is your life actively resisting the rule of our King Jesus? How do you need to change? The second response in today's scripture is the response of these deeply religious people. 
the scribes and the high priests. Notice what Matthew tells us in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, in other words, when he heard about the birth of a rival king of the Jews, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. In all Jerusalem with him. See, this was no mystery. This was no secret what was going on when these magi came into Jerusalem asking about the king of the Jews. Everyone was hearing about it. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was gossiping about it. Everyone was whispering about it. It was all over the news of the day. And these scribes and chief priests who were the Bible scholars... They were certainly aware of what the Magi were seeking. They were the ones who talked to Herod and the Magi and told them that the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, seven miles due south from Jerusalem. This was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah 5.2. So naturally, these Bible scholars, these theologians, these believers in God's word, naturally, when they heard that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, naturally, they they jumped at the chance to go down there themselves and see the newborn king, right? I mean, wouldn't they do that? They believed in the Bible, after all. No, (laughs) they stayed home. They they couldn't even be bothered. Whereas these magi traveled 700 miles from the west to see Jesus in Bethlehem, these Bible scholars couldn't bother going seven miles south to see the newborn king. Shouldn't they have been, shouldn't they have been excited and overwhelmed with joy? How is it possible that they would stay home? How is it possible that nothing in their lives would change in response to the birth of Christ? How could they, how could they be so dead spiritually? And yet, when we consider our own lives, isn't there a little bit of a little bit of that scribe, a little bit of that chief priest in all of us? Tim Keller says in a recent book he he wrote called Hidden Christmas that we ought to be astonished at what God has done for us in Christ If we are Christians, after all, that means that before the foundation of the world, God knew us. God elected us. God wanted us, you and me, to be with him for eternity. And God put into motion a plan before the foundation of the world, a plan that would make this intention possible. Who are we that God would do that for us? Who am I? What have I done to deserve all of this? Nothing at all. And yet that's the gospel. That's the good news. Keller writes, I would go so far as to say that this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. What is Christianity? If you think Christianity is mainly going to church, believing a certain creed, and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder and surprise about the fact that you are a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You will say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Why do you ask? Christianity is, in this view, something done by you. And so there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something that's done for you and to you and in you, 
then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. If someone asks if you're a Christian, you should never say, of course. See, there is no of courseness about being a Christian. It would be more appropriate for us to respond, yes, I am. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it a miracle that God saved someone like me? I mean, who would have thought that would happen? Yet God did it, and I, and I, and I owe everything to him. When we consider the third response, the response of the wise men, we do see that they were astonished at what God did to lead them to Jesus, the newborn king. First, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Christmas message, in other words, changed the way they felt. It penetrated their hearts. It affected them emotionally. Do these words judge us? Are are we coming to church during this holiday season, for instance, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? Why not? Next, it says that they fell down and worshiped. And notice that their worship also included the giving of very expensive sacrificial gifts. Finally, in verse 12, it says that after being warned in a dream about Herod's true intentions, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. For, for 2,000 years, the church has interpreted these words symbolically as well as historically. Recall in the book of Acts, the Christian movement was called the way. And, and Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the life and the truth and the life. The Magi were now following in a new and different and better way, the way of Jesus Christ. So their lives, we can be confident, was, were never going to be the same as a result of this encounter with Christ. What about our lives? In the face of this good news of Christmas, why aren't we astonished like these wise men? Why are our, our, our lives so often left unchanged? Why does our life, instead of going by another way, so often continue the same old way? After we get baptized, after we get confirmed, after we join the church, I think we can answer this question in part by looking at these gifts of the Magi. Now, I promise you what follows is not going to be a little sermon on financial stewardship. As tempting as that would be, um, this is not a financial stewardship message, because when I talk about gifts, I'm not mostly talking about money. It includes that, but that's just one part of it. I'm talking about giving any gift at all to Jesus, which includes the gift of our money, the gift of our time, the gift of our attention, the gift of our talents, the gift of our possessions, the gift of our strength, the gift of our energy. Anything we do for Christ, anything we offer for Christ is a gift for him. Now, if you know me, I've spoken against this before. I am just, I hate the prosperity gospel. I do. It's just absolutely uh, uh, heretical. It's a sinful uh, 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 doctrine. Um, 
I, I see these TV preachers preaching at sometimes like Creflo Dollar and others, and I just want to throttle them and say, look at the gospel. Do you understand what the gospel is? I do not believe that, uh, that we give financially in order to receive something greater back from God financially or to give uh, financially and then we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be healthy, you know, or we're going to be wealthy or whatever. Um, I mean, we may be healthy and wealthy to be sure, but, you know, God may also send us to be eaten by lions in the Colosseum. Either way, God will be glorified. But we follow a savior who tells us to pick up our cross, our instrument of torture and death and follow him, who tells us that if we lose our lives for his sake, we will find our life, who tells us to give up everything for him. This is not compatible with the message of the prosperity gospel. But I'm going to say something that might seem controversial, maybe even contradictory, but bear with me. If you give to Jesus, you will receive something in return. And you're thinking, Brent, that sounds terrible. Weren't you just speaking against the prosperity gospel and its emphasis on giving in order to get? And here you are saying that if we give to Jesus, we will get something in return. How do you, how does all that work together? If we give our gifts sacrificially to Jesus, whatever those gifts are, up to and including the gift of our very life. We will receive something in return. This is a biblical guarantee. We will receive more of Jesus. Our problem is so often that we're not convinced that receiving more of Jesus, more of his grace, more of his love, more of his spiritual gifts, more of his supernatural power through the Holy Spirit, a greater sense of his presence in our lives. We're not convinced that receiving more of Jesus is worth it. We're not convinced that having more of Jesus is worth what it costs to receive more of Jesus because we don't treasure Jesus as much as we treasure all these other things in our lives. So we're afraid. We're afraid to give ourselves completely to Jesus. We're afraid to do what the wise men do and return by another way, which means we're afraid to live our lives differently from the 99.9% of our friends and neighbors. We're afraid to live under the kingship of of Jesus. We're afraid to submit to him completely. We're afraid to live completely under his authority and the authority of God's word. We're afraid to live completely for his glory rather than living for our own glory. We're afraid. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent and change. We need to follow the example of these magi. For them... Jesus was, was, was worth not merely the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which was costly. 
not merely traveling 1,400 miles round trip, which was costly, not merely going home by another way, which was costly because it's clear that they were putting their lives in danger by crossing the evil King Herod who might have them killed now. They were willing to risk everything because Jesus was worth it to them. And these wise men are in heaven now. They are enjoying more of Jesus in a way that we can hardly imagine. If they could return to us for even a moment this morning and speak to us, what would they say? They would say, Jesus is worth everything you can give. Don't be afraid to give yourselves completely to him. Don't hold back. Having more of Jesus is worth everything you could possibly give. Amen. Amen. God, we thank you for your gift of Jesus. We thank you that... We are, even though we are sinners and we are incapable of doing anything to save ourselves, you have done everything necessary to bring us into a relationship with you. These are hard-hitting words that I've shared, hard-hitting examples from Scripture, but remind us that there is grace where we fall short and that Living this Christian life is a lifelong process, but we need your Holy Spirit to change us, to change us from within, to enable us to be your faithful disciples. Bless us now as we return to our homes, return to uh, whatever we are doing to be ready for the celebration of Christmas. Bring us back safely this evening so that we can continue worshiping the birth of your son, Jesus the incarnation of God, the word, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity who came into our world and lived, suffered, died on a cross and rose again in order to bring each one of us into a saving relationship with you. This scripture reminds us of the mission, your mission, your mission to save the world from their sins, a mission that you've made us a part of. Help us to be faithful in carrying this out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on a Sunday morning, I hope that you will feel welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service, and then we have a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us.